Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. When we created Dramatic Pause, we were in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic. The closure of live performing arts centres in British Columbia, across Canada and around the world, has had an overwhelming effect on live performances, creating unemployment for countless number of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs. Now, some of us have begun producing performances for very limited audiences, but the industry has been impacted deeply and will take some time like many other service industries to recover. This shutdown has not only affected the economy greatly, but has also had huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance. And so, Here we are in the eighth month of the pandemic, and at the Fire Hall, we are trying to stay in touch with this podcast and with our many live performances. We are also looking at different ways to connect and to find ways to encourage discussions about topics that we believe Canadians are interested in hearing about, for that is what good live performing arts does. It stimulates conversation, it creates a greater awareness, and hopefully a lot of entertainment and laughs. And today's guest, Rosemary Georgeson, is someone I have been working with to do just that. Rosemary is a writer, a filmmaker, a storyteller, a mother, a grandmother, a fisher person, and the list goes on and on and on. I've been working with Rosemary on a project called In the Beginning, which we will discuss later on in the program. But first, welcome Rosemary to Dramatic Pause. Welcome, Rosemary. Hi, Donna. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. What have you been doing since COVID hit? What have I been doing? A lot of Zoom meetings. (laughs) And do you like them? Have you learned to love them? I don't know if love is the right word, but I appreciate them. Oh, good. (laughs) Now, has has COVID actually affected you much? I mean, what has it changed in your life? What has it changed? Well, I don't see as many people in real life. Um, I kind of, I missed that part. Um, I think I work more because I work from home. So I've eliminated all the driving. Um, so that's good for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a lot of good things that have come about in that. Um, for the first time in 20 years, I haven't had extra insurance on my car. So I like that. Um, I, I like this working from home. It, it's kind of neat. Well, good. <laughs> now, I remember, I actually remember when I first met you, and you probably might remember me, but uh, I remember that um, Marie Clements was working with us, award-winning uh, playwright and wow. filmmaker, beautiful new film out there right now. Uh, and uh, she was working on a project here because she was an associate writer here, I think, or associate artist or something, and she was working on the Downtown Eastside Women's Project. Yeah. And it was very, very popular. And we were getting like maybe 20 women a night and it was too much for Marie to handle. So I said, Marie, you probably need someone to help you. And she said, I know the perfect person. And I said, and who would that be? And she said, well, um, hmm, I'm gonna ask my cousin Rose. She needs something to do with her time. And after that, you came in and you worked with that group of women and that project went on for a long time. We did it for a while here and then Urban Inc. did it. And um, I think it's something that uh, 
we might want to bring back down the road. But at, and during COVID time, that's a little difficult to do uh, drop-in kind of writing workshops. But maybe in the future. Is yeah. that right? That's when I first met you, I think. Yeah, that is 20 years ago this past August. And how did she rope you into that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually what she said. I'm going to rope my cousin Rose into helping out here. Oh, how did she rook me into that? Gee, it's a... She just, she sent me a message. She called me up and said, do you want to come and hang out at a women's writing group? You don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> little did you know. <laughs> yeah, little did I know. I was kind of like her guinea pig in there. and it, But it was great. Yeah, You know, I found so much in that. I didn't even recognize at that point that I had stories to tell. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I wondered whether or not, because I know you've had a, a lot of uh, different uh, bends and turns in your career, and I've seen a picture of you on a fishing boat looking pretty gorgeous. Uh, so you were fishing, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and I think that was your family's industry that you worked on. Is that not correct? Yes, it was. I was born into it. Um, my dad, my grandfather, it, as far back as we can go, we've always been people of the water here. And it was just natural. My brothers all fished when we were young. Um, one brother, he just left. He was here fishing for a couple days at an opening in the river. Um, yeah, just always been fishermen. Did you grow up on Galliano or did you grow up here? I grew up on Galliano. What a beautiful um, place to grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing. We were all, you know, we grew up down in Georgeson Bay, uh, where our family's been for forever. Um, we date back, I think we're the oldest family on Galliano. Uh, the old Scotchman landed there in 1860 or something like that. So it's pretty much been 150 years we've been kicking around Galliano. Now tell me, do you mind telling me a bit about the old Scotchman as you referred to him? <laughs> <laughs> the old Scotchman. No. <laughs> yeah, Scotty Georgeson. That's my great, great grandfather. Um, he, his, uh, wife, my great, great grandmother, Sophie, uh, Chardonnay was from Cowichan tribes. I believe we never really did know where she came from. There was so many, um, things put out that maybe she was from Musqueam, maybe she was from Lillooet, but it was doing some research with my uh, film partner, um, Jessica Hallenbeck, Dr. Jessica Hallenbeck now, um, that we learned more about where Sophie was from. Because all of this was kind of a mystery to us, where she, you know, where Scotty met her and um, where she lived prior to that, to meeting Scotty. So I was talking with my sister-in-law and her great 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 grandmother was Sophie's sister. Well, so how we found out where she was from, and we just kind of started following that path. Well, and I remember at one point you saying that 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 the project that you were doing with Jessica was was partially initiated because you were searching to find your your great grandmother's roots. Great, yeah, my great great well, is that the right number of greats? <laughs> It's confusing, doesn't it? I, uh, yeah. I was actually looking for my grandfather's family. Okay. Because my grandfather was taken from his mom just by 
prior to his second or third birthday. So he didn't know her. And he had um, two sisters and a brother. And I guess when my great-grandfather passed away, she loaded up all her kids in the canoe and headed back to the North Shore. And the old Scotchman decided that one of those kids was going to be raised up with him as a Georgeson and um, came over here with his sons on the, one of their old boats. And they landed uh, somewhere on the North Shore and they went up and they took my grandfather and took him back to Galliano, just took him from his mother. So granddad never did know who his, know his brothers or sisters or his mom. And he went to work up in a logging camp in Butte's Inlet when he was 16. And that's where he met his brother for the first time. I think this is amazing. I mean, this is this kind of connects into this project that we're working on in a very interesting way. Because I, I don't think many of us, and I'll speak about myself as a Canadian hybrid, uh, uh, someone who came from the settlers, um, or is a settler, I guess, but I'm a Canadian hybrid blend. Um, we have a sense of what our history is, but quite often in terms of ind Indigenous families, that history has been taken from them because they've either had their children scooped up, yes. like in the 60s, or sent to residential school, or just taken. Um, yeah. And so I don't think a lot of people understand that that history is is there but it's not been documented in any real way because the inf information wasn't there and that's kind of what we're looking at within the beginning but i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself on that yeah, well at that time when they when my grandfather was taken back there was um there was three periods in our history that were it was i think it was called exclusion so the government wasn't neither the federal nor the provincial government were taking responsibility for us. So any births, deaths, or marriages were never registered in those three times. And that was around the time when my grandfather was born during one of those exclusionary times. So my grandfather didn't really exist until he was about 29. I think it was after he married my grandmother that um, he had to fill out some form and they had to recognize the government recognized him. But in the meantime, he'd already been overseas in World War One. It's kind of interesting because when I met my cousin Faye, Faye Blaney, about four or five years ago, and we were talking about our old grandmothers, and I said, you know, they were the first missing women, you know, because they were written out of history. They didn't, they didn't exist. Finding Emma. Um, my grandfather's mother, finding Sophie, where they were from, who they were. There was nothing out there about them. They just didn't exist. They didn't exist in the archives. So they, they existed, but they didn't exist um, yeah. in, in any kind of recorded history. No, they existed long enough to have kids over in Georgeson Bay. Right. And then they just kind of cease to exist it, it's ugly do you think that the projects that you're drawn to because you after that after that working with marie um obviously a little light went off off in you that said i i have this side of me that needs to explore my history but i also need to tell stories and i need to find ways to tell stories um 
So when that little light went off, what was your next project that you worked on? Oh, geez, where do we go after that? I think the next big project that we did after the women, downtown Eastside Women's Writing Group, is I moved into Women in Fish with Marie. Right. Yeah. And that, it was a, an interesting place to land doing Women in Fish because it was untold stories. People didn't recognize the fact that we as women, First Nations women, we'd always been on the water. We'd always been fishing. We'd Water was everything. It was our life, our highway, our economy, our connection. And that idea of telling and sharing in a story that had never been told, it fascinated me in that way. It gave, up until that point when we did that, I'd kind of felt like everything I'd learned before that as a fisherman was kind of wasted knowledge. Because like, where do you go with it? What do you do with it when that's all you know and what you know and what you love to do? And then it's gone. So Women and Fish brought, it made that knowledge valuable. It gave it a use again. And the fact that it's an untold story and it's an untold story about women has kept me really pretty busy the last 15 years. <laughs> well, I, I remember that because it was a film, we made it into a film. Uh, and uh, one of my sons actually is in that film, yeah. which I had forgotten about until you mentioned that. I think he ends up going into the water and being filmed underwater or something uh, yeah. with another, with a woman in a wedding dress, I think. Yeah. That was with <laughs> Deblica Gunn from Ames over on Galliano. She was pregnant with her daughter at the time. And her and Spencer were in the water at like 10 o'clock at night, swimming around down in one of the bays on Galliano while Tim was filming. Well, it was a beautiful film. I remember the film. It was beautiful. I remember that image particularly, probably because my son was in it. But I also remember the content of it was uh, that I hadn't ever thought about, you know, because it, it's such a perceived to be such a masculine dominated industry. And again, yeah. that's where history kind of fails because that's not the way it was. No. Um, there was had to be a partnership, I would think, in families to make uh, fishing actually uh, to make your living fishing, but also to collect enough food to get you through the winter, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't remember it in a time in my life where being on the boats, it wasn't a family business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it what it took more than one person to do it. You know, I, my brother was just here and we were talking about something and I started teasing him. I said, well, you've been fishing since you've been seven years old. It's, you know, when he started going with dad, I think he was seven or eight and he would go away for four months at a time to go work on the boat with dad. So do you miss the water? Do you go out on the boat at all? I miss the water all the time, every day. Um, I don't have much of a chance to get out on the water on a boat right now. Haven't for a long time. Um, every once in a while, if my brother's, you know, tied up down in Ladner or something, I go out and spend time with him, clean some fish, do stuff like that. Just to, just to get the feel of them again. I missed all that slime and the smell. And um, my favorite smell in the world is the combination of fish and diesel. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
There's something about that smell that just totally triggers my memory and takes me back to my childhood. Yeah, it takes you back to a place where you were happy and you felt safe and yeah. loved and all those kind of things, all those good things. Like, you know, <laughs> certain things do that. Sometimes it's food. <laughs> but that's fabulous. So so in terms of, of uh, where we are now, I mean, there's another project that I wanted to talk about that you also took on, which was... Um, in the interior up in the Chilcotin, I think. Um, but what the work you're doing now and what I kind of gather from it is, is seems to be about um, unveiling uh, the history of indigenous women. Um, and it seems to be driven by that comment that you made earlier about uh, missing women. Now there are mi women missing in various, various yeah. tragic, tragic, tragic ways, yeah. but, uh, women's history is also very much missing. Well, Indigenous history is is yeah. missing, but uh, I'm curious about a project that you did, um, and I think it was in Hundred Mile House, or was Williams it Williams Lake? Williams Lake, yeah, yeah. Can you do you mind talking about that a bit? Because I'm curious about why you actually did that project. Like, how did you <laughs> end up in Williams Lake doing a project that had such a a, a connection to such a derogatory name? Um, in terms of the, it wasn't it called Squaw the, Hall? The, the Squaw Hall Project. It, yeah. Yeah. You know, we took a lot of flack over that name, but there, there's an interesting story why we kept the name. We, when we went to, we first connected with Diane Roberts and Nick Harwood connected. And Nick is from Williams Lake. And she was, walking up by uh, over the hill there but above where the um, longhouse is and the only thing they had to recognize that that notorious dance hall was there was just one little plaque and it said this was the site of and really not a lot to it and there's so many stories and we heard lots of them up there good bad you know, some people wanted to talk about it and share their memories of it. Some just would shut down. But when we started doing the project, we formed an advisory committee up there. Um, one of the women was head of the Aboriginal education for Caribou Chilcotin, um, a chief, a woman from head of the Aboriginal liaison for the hospital, so these were three First Nations women on the on that were on the advisory committee, and we went into one of our meetings one night, and somebody had said something about the name. They didn't like the name. They didn't want it, and so we asked them. And there was two men in there, part of the advisory committee too. And I loved their reaction when we put it up there. They just put their hands up and sat back, and they looked at the women, and it was up to the women to respond to this. And we asked them if they wanted us to change the name of it. And I, I'll never forget that moment. They all just looked at each other. And it was just like this moment of understanding between them all. They all looked back at me and one of them spoke and she said, no, they named this hall for us. We didn't name it. They named it. They have to live with it. And that's how it stayed, the Squaw Hall project. Can, can you sh just share a bit of what, what, what the Squaw Hall was? Because a lot of people don't wouldn't know if you feel comfortable doing that. 
it was this back in the day this is one one of the stories that I heard how it came to be one of the women up there got married and her husband was non-indigenous and they went to go to the legion to celebrate their wedding and they wouldn't let her in so this is how they came up they built this like a big corral type place really didn't have a roof on it um and this was the indigenous people that were building it right yeah so that they would have a place to go to during stampede time and a place for them to dance and celebrate and um so that's how squall hall got built and it wound up that people wanted to go there after the bar closed and it, sometimes it was you know you had to wear boots all the time because bottles would get thrown in over the top be, they eventually put uh chicken mesh over the top of it to stop that from happening um you know small so town saturday night fights stuff like yeah. that so it became kind of a notorious place to go and it, at, at some point somebody called it that and probably yeah. i would imagine from the mainstream community and, yeah and, and i so instead of being able to actually have uh, a wedding in a, a church or in the Legion where yeah. everyone else was able to do, this had to be created. Because again, it's a that yeah that uh, putting aside that that the indigenous people have have such a rich, rich history and shoving them off to the side in the hopes that they will go away. Yeah, you know some of the stories that we heard from some of the elders up there. It just, it made you feel so good. One woman, her husband and her talked about when he proposed to her there. Um, the Some of them talked about just dancing the night away under the stars. It, it, it was, you know, lots of them had really beautiful stories. And then there was the other side, which yeah. some of them were just plain ugly, downright ugly. But it, you know, it covered both good and bad for a lot of people up there. I'm glad that we got to do the project. Um, we worked with a lot of youth while we were there. We brought youth in to um, help. The first round we created a play, um, Burning Issues is the what we used. It's a program that Nick Harwood brought in. I think it, she might've developed it. And it was getting the kids to tell their story one line at a time and just throwing it out there. And we just worked with it and played with it. And they learned about creating this play on their feet, editing it down. It, it was a really amazing experience for ourselves and the kids. The kids took on so much and they, they became different it, it, you know they came in they were kind of like what are we doing here and why do we have to be here with you <laughs> the transformative nature of theater it's fabulous it was beautiful it just you know one of the young men found his way with um stage uh lighting and sound he, he just loved it didn't want to be on stage one of our young girls she was just this amazing performer like She'd walk in at five, two, you know, be five minutes before we were going to go on stage. She'd go, What's the problem? I got this. And she'd just walk on stage and just nail it. 
so much for half hour call. You should be here. <laughs> so let's move to uh, talking about how uh, this project that we're, we're working on now has come about. And um, within that, we can talk and you can talk about some of the other stories. But I, in the beginning, the project that we're doing next week that will be streamed, um, yeah. we... Uh, came to it because we were doing some work on a project last year uh, and discovered that we were having great difficulty finding any kind of recorded history um, or historical data really on um, the Indigenous contribution or the Indigenous connection to the land here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we, I think, brainstormed for a while. And I'd love to hear your interpretation about what you think happened and how we got to this place. Because uh, in my brain, I go, well, just we just kept talking and it, it emerged. But please. Yeah. But, you know, I don't really remember, my to tell you the truth. <laughs> it's, it just... After what we did last year, to me, it just seemed like the natural course of things because we struggled with what we did last year and how to create something that wasn't basically cliche, you know, the pan-Indian kind of stuff, you know. It was good what we did last year because it opened up stuff and it got us to really think about what we were doing and how we were going to do it. Um, But the work that we did on this piece last year was stuff that has been done over and over and over again, like the coming in to do research and learn about us in the East side and stuff. And it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right. It, it wasn't comfortable to do that because we didn't know the stories from the people themselves. Yeah, for what we were trying to do, and this is just for people that are listening, actually, we were trying to figure out a way to tell the the history of of what had happened here um, around close to the Fire Hall neighborhood in the downtown east side, Strathcona, Chinatown, yeah. Japantown uh, area, and kept trying to come up with ideas as to how to get into that history without it being didactic and just, okay, that's already been told. So I think, yeah. I think, I think you're right because I think we sort of threw our hands up. We did what we did last year, and then we met again because we were going to take it forward. Uh, and this is uh, as part of the Heart of the City Festival. We wanted to take it forward this year, and then we kind of—I remember kind of going, "I just can't do that. I—I—I I, I don't want to recreate stories that I that seem so distant." And there seems to be a voice missing in this whole piece because mm-hmm. before everybody came here uh, to settle and to uh, take. Um, the health out of the, not the health, but take the resources and, and all of that and to colonize and to build the city of Vancouver, there were people here already. Um, And that didn't seem to be anywhere there. So I, I think we started by just talking, I guess, and and how we would get to the place of, of knowing that history or even hearing stories of that history. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that's exactly where we were opening up the discussion about it, about who was here and their stories. And where did their, you know, where are their stories being told? Where, and what right do we have to create a piece around their stories that have never been told? Yeah. And I think it was also kind of looking at all the different people that live in the neighborhood, all the urban indigenous people and trying to figure out, um 
who who all came because there's these people from all over North America here and from down yeah. the coast and over the river over the ocean and down the rivers and uh, across the mountains and so that's kind of what we got to and and really uh, I I'm curious about um, the hit finding out more about the history and I think our audiences will be as well um, so did you want to talk a bit about how who is who's who's speaking and and how we um, want to develop this dialogue that we want to share with people about this? It, I was having a conversation with my cousin, Wes Nahaney, and he said, well, we have to acknowledge our guests first. So that's where people from over the mountains came in. And then people from the water and upriver came in next because they all came to this area so they're they were our guests they are our guests here so they go first and then it was you know each one of the host nations asking Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish to come in and share their stories that's how we developed the lineup of it um, and then we started looking at the arts since this is an arts festival that this is part of um, just about everybody who's in the lineups for each event has done, has had some kind of connection into Heart of the City Festival, um, working with um, VMT or with you. So we're, we're all connected in this, in the land, in our stories, in our place in the, in these events that are, have been created. I call them events for lack of better word. It's uh, to, well, to me, they seem like events, major events of these people telling their own stories and creating a lively conversation. I mean, we're, we, how this is working and uh, we're having, it's called, well, we're referring to it kind of as a cultural sharing, but we have a, a guide a facilitator who will lead people through the discussions that happen each night. But I, I, I had no idea of, of, of the, the amount of information that was out there because I'm just now starting to get a lot of it. And it's, it's fascinating to me that one of the, one of the uh, people, Ronnie Dean Harris, who will be speaking, um, he ha has maps and, and yeah. can you talk a bit about, because you've seen a lot of that stuff. Well, he was telling me about it. He, you know, talking about the old trails, um, how people came into Vancouver, like Kingsway was one of those old trails that brought people in from Kaikat and um, Kate's area and stuff. And it was a trail they walked. One of my, cousins that I met a few years ago she told me a story of walking that trail from North Van when she was like five years old with her mom to go out and get papers for I believe it was our great-grandmother who had passed but she walked as a child down Kingsway from North Van down that what was the trail then from North Van <laughs> and they canoed across I guess did they canoe across yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so Ronnie has developed this series of maps, from what I understand, of these old trails that connected us, like the Semiamu people, Tuasan, First Nation, Kwantland here. They all, there was trails all over the place that led into the downtown. I guess it was people gathered there. I haven't got that far with it yet. Well, I think also one of the things that we discovered was that... Um, at one point, this area, the Vancouver area, was 
referred to or thought of as having five islands. And people go, when I say that, people go, what? And I go, well, yeah, Stanley Park, uh, yeah. Lost Lagoon in there. That was uh, that was an island. That There was Dead Man's Island, of course, yeah. where the, the uh, uh, I think it's a naval thing. I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, uh, I can't remember that uh, one. And then there was water that came along Carroll Street and mm-hmm. water along Campbell Avenue, uh, False Creek. So yeah. there were a number of pockets of land that were actually islands when the tide was uh, low. Yeah. And and that, at that point, I'm sure that people were moving uh, around those islands to find the best place to fish or the best place for grass or the best, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the various things that they needed to berries, berries, um, uh, fish, how, hunting, yeah. it, it, it was all there. Yeah. You know, I don't think many people really know that the, it was five islands that Vancouver is very much man-made. You know, they filled in so much of and connected all of these little islands. Like, you know, didn't the water go back all the way up to Clark Drive? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 When, when False Creek was high, when the tides were in, it went um, up. Yeah. I think it came out around New Broughton, New Broughton or somewhere. There's a there's Campbell Campbell Avenue where you see the yeah. the the um, the train tracks go through there now. But yeah, there was water that went there. And I think it also uh, went higher up as well. But of course, none of that is is absolutely uh, written down anywhere and probably would have been told in an, or had an oral history been kept yeah. or allowed to happen, which, which yeah. again, didn't, wasn't allowed. Uh, that story might've been there as to, uh, how all of that operated, but Vancouver was very different. I mean, people oh, oh, yeah. it was discovered with Douglas fir. I go, no, there were lots no. of walnut trees. There were, a yeah. whole, I mean, it was like a, a garden of wonder actually. <laughs> so no yeah. more people wanted to come and see <laughs> <laughs> you know, the False Creek is, I've watched it shrink. You know, it's less than half the size it was when I remember coming here as a kid. Because it's being you know, filled in, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, Campbell so Avenue was, it was so busy because that's where all the fish plants were along the waterfront. So the waterfront is all completely different and the the lay of the land, even in my short 60 years it's it's com- very very different well and the uh the actual uh fish canneries and all that area that you just mentioned that was a place that uh indigenous people uh, first nations people connected with all the other people that had come yeah. to this area the japanese people that were working at the fish cannery the the portuguese i believe yeah yeah there were every, you know everybody was represented down on the waterfront um, women would come in, their men would come down here on the boats, you know, they would come fishing down here and the women would uh, go to work in the fish plants for a while while their husbands were fishing out here. It always worked. There used to be, I think there was like 12,000 shore workers at one time. Now we're, they're temp jobs. Because well, a lot of indige- indigenous people went into long, long, the longshoremen and working on yeah. the docks, yeah. They would come here and that would be, you know, the first job that lots of the men would get would be working on the waterfront. And then now another person that's going to be with us is actually uh, Bob Baker, who uh, is, is, is Squamish. Yes. Uh, and he, you were sharing with me and he shared it with me slightly is uh, the reintroduction of the canoe. 
Yeah, that's I'm looking forward to hearing what he shares about that. Um, they brought back canoe culture um, along with everything else in our communities. It was something that disappeared. And geez, I don't know how long ago it was. He started doing the canoeing with the kids and youth over there. Um, and they brought it back through tribal journeys. You know, there was always um, things like canoe races. I remember attending them when I was really young over on Vancouver Island. And the, the war canoes, 12-man uh, war canoes, different, some of them were two men. Women, women pulled too. Um, but it was kind of, like everything else, it was kind of getting less. Um, and... You know, I'm really not sure on Bob's story. I can't remember it fully at the moment. But when we were chatting, he was talking about that, that bringing it back. Um, I think they did some language revitalization there, too. Um, and the other person that's going to be in that lineup with them is Tracy Williams. And she, I've done some work with her before uh, with Sharon Callis, Earth Hand Gleaners. And we were... Um, rolling stinging nettles to make nets the way that we used to make nets before Portuguese Joe brought in cotton and stuff. This was the old way of making nets where we'd roll, thigh roll the stinging nettles, you'd dry them, a lot of process to it. And she does stuff like that, works with the uh, plants and things. Yeah. So there's a whole, uh, thankfully, and I think to the benefit of all of, the others, uh, there's a, 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 a an emerging. I'm going to say, and this is a, this is an European word, uh, renaissance happening. There's a there there is a, a new, um, and it's been going on for quite a while. I think perhaps not a little, not as prominently, but there's a rediscovery of a lot of the original uh, weaving crafts. The the rediscovery, not the rediscovery. It wasn't forgotten, but it, the the energy to push forward. Yeah, a resurgence to, to actually honor and recognize the value of all those um, actions and way people lived then. Um, yeah. there's so much to learn from um, indigenous cultures, uh, and I wonder because I think there was was wasn't there isn't there a saying that seven generations. Is this mm -hmm. the seventh generation? I don't know if we're quite to the seventh generation yet, but we're, I think we're making up time. Like <laughs> the <laughs> and the seventh generation was in reference to the destruction of yeah. indigenous um, uh, yeah. ways of living uh, across North America. Yeah. I think I can't remember, and I should know who said that, but <laughs> I don't. So. I remember hearing that a long time ago and, you know, watching and just in my own family counting to seven generations, but I can only go back five. Right. Well, right. actually, no, because there is seventh generation when I look at my grandchildren and what they're doing now and my nieces and nephews and that. So, yeah, seventh generation. I have a nephew who's taken all the knowledge of the old ones about water and he's turned it into something new still carrying with him all what he learned as a child growing up, working on the boats. Now he's out in the world on big, big ships and. He's on the water. water. He's, yeah. he's still on, on a boat. He's, yep. he's still on the water. Um, yeah. 
And, and, and in this discussions that we've been having, and I think it goes beyond the discussion we're going to be having next week and, and uh, is really the connection to the land and, and to the water and to everything that's within the natural world. Um, The respect that um, is that these areas, that these things are held in now, not a lot of of, uh, mainstream populations feel that way. Uh, and not all Indigenous people feel that way too. And I think that when I think about Bob reintroducing the canoe culture, at that point, I'm sure there was um, a lot of pressure to forget the history, yeah. to say goodbye and just uh, embrace mainstream culture and the the big trucks and the various things that are out there that we can all buy if we want to and have enough money. So is that something that you see in in the the young people that you work with, or are they all driven to actually um, find out more about themselves? Because a lot of the people on this program are people that are rediscovering or are trying to learn their language or keep the languages alive. You know, once it's opened up with the youth and they feel safe in a place where they can ask questions, and they always want to know more. It's like they're thirsty. They need to have the knowledge. And it's through that work that I keep coming back. Every once in a while, I think, oh, I'm going to retire now. And then some amazing project comes along where I get to see these things happen with um, the youth or the women I'm working with or the communities I'm in. And it's just like they're hungry to know more. Um, what That other project we were talking about, up in Williams Lake there, one of the, the kids had learned filming and how to do an interview and uh, build the questions. And they were uh, out in the community and they picked seven elders that they wanted to speak with and interview. And one of the elders shared with them, this, go out there and you take all that knowledge, all that stuff that that they're giving you and you you learn everything you can from them but never forget who you are and take what you know with it and merge them together and I've watched that happen I've seen that happen and um, amazing things when they're they're hang they're hang on to their own culture and what they know and merge it with this other education it's taking our youth to amazing places yeah and still staying inside of our own cultures our own worlds but still expanding out into the bigger world too now what we're talking about is tremendously hopeful i think it's really um really positive and certainly would support uh what i would think would be a a reconciliation but the reconciliation uh, that is talked about can only happen if there's a connection with all everybody. And uh, yeah. I'm curious whether or not you think that that's starting to happen, that people are becoming more aware and wanting to connect and understand better. I think amongst ourselves, our communities and such, yeah, yeah. We know that reconciliation isn't going to happen with the government, the government can't even define it themselves what it is. <laughs> but in a grassroots way, we're doing it. And that's yeah. where it's going to start when we start doing 
things like this project in the beginning. Well, yeah. that certainly wasn't, I mean, I wasn't thinking, I mean, I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had many, 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 many great recommendations, and I think it'll yeah. take a long time for them to be realized, but I also feel that it's really easy for people to forget, and I'm talking about mm -hmm. mainstream cultures more than Indigenous cultures, um, to forget that there there is a role for them to play in that, and uh, yeah. easy to say, okay, well, that's been done, and then we hear about um, a, a a, a community in northern Manitoba that has to move because all of their water is contaminated or we hear yeah. about people uh, in smaller communities here in BC whose water is is uh, not drinkable yeah. and uh, it kind of um, brings to mind that there's so much more work to be done and I, uh -huh. I do think that that history the history part that we're exploring is part of that um, and I'm yeah. really hoping that uh, more people will start to look into this history and try to find out and understand it. Yeah. Um, Rose, is there anything else you'd like to say about what we're what we're hoping to do next week? I mean, I I think that we have people like Margot Kane, Renai Morisot, um, we have uh, Chief Leah Wilson. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of fabulous people that will be talking, and essentially, we're just going to be talking and listening. Well, we're yeah. I'm going to be listening. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm going to be sitting there beside you listening. It's, I don't know. It's it's such an interesting concept. I, I've people have said to me, you know, they don't think this has ever been tried before. You know, and there was excitement from people when I started calling them and talking to them about this. And um, to it's something different so i'm looking forward to seeing how that goes it's i i'm having one of those moments when i think about it donna like um one of the storms i was in it's like either just you know you're climbing up that big wave and you don't know if you're going to go over the top of it what's going to happen just hit that throttle close your eyes and hope for the best kind of <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, I'm hoping we don't have to do a lot of swimming next week. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, I think that's a really interesting metaphor for it because the, the wave is pretty big. I mean, when yeah. you think about it, the wave is pretty big. Uh, but on the other side of it, we have all these great voices who want to be part of riding that wave and, yeah. and getting to the other side, if you will, and are already doing that through their work. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's the big piece is the the people that you have identified and Rose did all of the identification of people really we brainstormed but it was really her uh, and uh, um, are, are people that are on that wave and wanting yeah. people to join in on them on riding it so I, I, I don't um, I mean aside from the fact that we don't know what will be said that's part of the that's actually the exciting part of it. Yeah. Is, you know, if we knew what was going to be said, we could have written it already. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a very creative process, is it? Or it's not a no. very free process, really, because you're, you know, it's like you're not improvising at all. You're just doing the lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like I said, I think there's going to be something really amazing that's going to happen each and every night. And then after this is all over, we're going to figure out what to do next. But uh, but I think this is a project that's going to go on for a while and hopefully bear uh, a lot of good uh, ideas that will carry forward. Yeah. So this is the point where I say, um, Rose, if you had to do a dramatic pause, what would you do? 
What would I do? Or what is a dramatic pause to you? Sitting on a log on the beach, watching the tide go in and out. <laughs> Takes about eight hours to go out and come back in. That, that's a nice dramatic pause. That's a beautiful dramatic pause. <laughs> I think at this point, even all of those people who've had their lives dramatically paused by COVID, that's a place that, I, I mean, I certainly have seen more people out and about walking in the parks because that's the only option. Yeah. <laughs> but I also see them actually learning to realize how beautiful uh the outdoors yeah. are and what they can do with their children out there. And I, I just love seeing people playing on the beaches with their kids because uh, if they had to be at work, they wouldn't be able to do that. But now because people are zooming into their offices, they can change their hours so that yeah. they can do that kind of thing. On the other <laughs> side of it, I know there are a lot of people that are unemployed and I, uh, and are facing a uh, very difficult times. So I, I, I certainly do hope that something comes together to help yeah. all of those people. And we certainly yeah. see that around the fire hall for sure. Yeah, you're right in the heart of it there. Yeah, um, and, and a, cha a challenging um, thing to, to, to solve, Ho homelessness, uh, um, as well as the drug crisis, very challenging to solve. But the hope would be that if everyone had a home that they felt safe in, that they, they would have, a, have the means to be able to help themselves through life. Yeah. You know, when you were saying that just now, I was just thinking about, you know, what, that we might be on this for a long time to come yet. And, you know, the different layers of it, it's like that big onion that you keep peeling the layers away, but learning about the place you're at and the, the land you're on and stuff and understanding what was there and what's transpired to make it the way it is and what's happened there and how it was it like a gathering place for Canada of indigenous people from all over Turtle Island coming there and stuff. Sometimes with understanding that and knowing these things, things change, start changing on their own. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Cause I think it's true. I think you, you, we don't know what's next. We really don't know what's next. And, and perhaps this pause time is going to, I hope help us realize that, we have to be in the present because we don't know what's going to happen next. So yeah. if we act responsibly, hopefully something will happen next. But well, Look at that dramatic pause the world took about six months ago. The canals in Venice started turning blue again. China could see up to the sky. These things just started happening when the world took a dramatic pause. Yes, it was so quiet. It was so much quieter in the city. It was so much quieter and uh, the air was so much cleaner. Yeah. Um, and I hope that every once in a while we remember that because that might slow us down in this crazy pace that we all uh, try to have been trying to live with for quite a while. Yeah. It's just sped up, sped up. And the net, another question I always ask my dramatic pause guests is what would you do if you were given a huge grant and had the money you needed and didn't have to report back on everything that you did with that money? What would you do? <laughs> what would I do? Jeez. You know, I have no idea what I do because I feel like I'm doing so much already. So... <laughs> really do up the the next project in a 
fantabulous, glamorous way. That's probably what I do. <laughs> I'm going to give you more money than that, though. <laughs> oh, oh! In that case, heck, we'll do it three times over. <laughs> and employ countless number of artists. <laughs> yes, yes. And tour the world. <laughs> create performance wherever the installation goes. It's, it's yeah. Just keep creating more really great art. It will tell, I'm sure, amazing stories because that seems to be what you connect to is some amazing stories. Do you have a project after this one that's that you're that you got in the back burner? Um, working with my film partner, Dr. Jessica Hallenbeck and Dr. Kate Hennessy out on Galliano doing some creating a digital installation on based around the stories of my grandmother finding family women and women water and fish and stories that hold us together that sounds like a great project i'm sure i'm going to hear more about it i hope <laughs> oh oh you will <laughs> all right well i think it's time to wrap this up um and i just want to thank you rose for taking your time to be with us i know we've been spending a fair amount of time together and we'll be spending a bit more i think which i'm looking forward to so thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Donna. It's been fun. <laughs> Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver, and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca. And we will get back to you as soon as possible. And just a reminder, Next week, November 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, at the Fire Hall, we're doing a project called In the Beginning, and all the information about that is on our website. Thanks very much. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Fire Hall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer, Donna Spencer, and produced by technical director, Alastair Wallace. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Fire Hall Art Centre, its employees, or its supporting bodies. 